We're in the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're in chapter 15. We're going to look at chapters 15 and 16 this morning. If you'd open your Bibles there or navigate on your device. Or you can just sit there and look at me and trust that I'm reading from the Bible. Whatever you want to do. I don't mean to be telling you what to do. After all, this is America. So, uh, but it would be helpful if you followed along. Chapters 15 and 16, the topic, the seven-year tribulation comes to its climactic end with the rapid pouring out of the seven bowls of the wrath of God, the title of our message, Super Bowls 7. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our morning. Thus far, we've opened up our heart to worship you. Now, we pray that uh, we would receive from your word those things that are uh, wonderful to hear Uh, that are encouraging, Lord, that are uh, special because of your love for us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. His superhero name is the Sphinx, and his superpower among his fellow mystery men is to speak in predictable sayings. Here are a few of them. He who questions training only trains himself at asking questions. When you doubt your powers, you give power to your doubts. And my favorite When you can balance a tack hammer on your head, you will head off your foes with a balanced attack. Get it? The people who are doing the Spanish translation said, what does that mean? I go, I don't even know in English what that means, so have fun with that. If you think those are profound, they're not, so hold on before you tweet them or post them to Facebook. The movie they're from is a parody and they're intended to be funny. I'm gonna risk a saying this morning though, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Pastors and Bible teachers sometimes, in fact, often use it to point out the two very different responses people have to the gospel in times of trial or trouble in their lives. Some lean on the Lord and become better for it, while others loathe the Lord and become bitter. The greatest time of trial and trouble the world will ever know is the future seven-year tribulation. As the judgments of God upon the earth and those who dwell upon it come to their conclusion with the pouring out of the seven bowls full of the wrath of God, there are two very distinct responses. Believers who were martyred during the tribulation are described as blessing God by singing to him a song of deliverance, while those yet alive as his final wrath is being poured out remain faithful to the end. Non-believers, having refused to repent, are described as gnawing their own tongues and as blaspheming God to the bitter end. Now, we've been calling the tribulation the grace of wrath since God's judgment being carefully meted out upon the earth dwellers is designed to lead them to salvation. Since God's grace is active all the time, we can see it in our trials and troubles now prior to the tribulation. That means we too who currently dwell on earth can bless him or we can scorn grace and blaspheme him. I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Do you bless God seeing his grace at work or do you blaspheme God scorning his grace at work? Let's take a look first of all in chapter 15 about blessing God. Now after a few chapters that filled in some details, we arrive at the closing months of the seven year tribulation with the rapid pouring out of what are called seven bowls of the wrath of God in chapter 16. Chapter 15 sets it up, describing the ceremony in the temple in heaven as the bowls are brought forth. And so verse one of chapter 15, then I saw another sign in heaven, 
uh, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. Put most simply, God's wrath is his necessary and proper response to human sin and disobedience. A.W. Pink said it is, quote, the holiness of God stirred into action against sin. His wrath will be complete reminds us that God will have done everything possible to save lost human beings from his wrath before he unleashes it upon the earth. Verse 2, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. These are the believers who were killed during the tribulation. Their victory over the beast was to die confessing Jesus Christ as their Lord. When the moment of decision came, they refused to worship the Antichrist and they showed their worship of Jesus Christ with their blood. Victory in the Christian life is often God's strength that is forged from your weakness. It looks like defeat until you see it from heaven. And this is, uh, it stumbles us sometimes even as Christians because we feel as though um, God has abandoned us or God isn't listening to us or, you know, where is God kind of a thing. And, and we, we don't recognize uh, that so often, uh, in fact, all the time, really, God's strength comes out of our weakness. If, if I could handle something, I wouldn't need God. You know, God just isn't, you know, one of the tools in the tool shed, you know, when, when you get into something really difficult. Uh, God wants you to depend on him all of the time. And so there are going to be a lot of times when uh, you're going to seem foolish to the world. But uh, and God says, I use the foolish things to confound the wise. And that's you. You're the foolish thing. Uh, and, and we don't like that. Uh, we, we want to think that we have, uh, you know, education and experience and all of those kinds of things. And Paul the Apostle came along and said, yeah, I don't care about any of those things that came before. My, I mean, he was tremendously educated, uh, Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, you know, he's one of the smartest guys on the planet, let alone in, in uh, Jerusalem. He says, I count all that a uh, pile of dung compared to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, and if you, you know, we look at the Apostle Paul, we call him the great Apostle Paul, right? Uh, if you look at him uh, just, you know, at what's happening in his life, I mean, the guy's getting beat up, thrown in jail, uh, arrested. Uh, shipwrecked. I mean, it, it, the guy's got a miserable life if he's not a Christian. And he says that in one place. He says, hey, if there's no resurrection from the dead, we're of most men most miserable. Uh, and, and so uh, be ready for uh, those situations where God says, hey, you're going to get the victory, but it, it's going to come in a way that you wouldn't have uh, chosen for yourself. Verse three, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And the song of the Lamb saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone, oh, we should just sing it, right? We're not going to though. For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifest. You think they'll have the same melody in heaven? You ever visit other churches? They, they all sing songs wrong. Have you noticed that? Go to another Calvary even and say, man, you guys, go, you know, go up to the pastor, I dare you, and say, you guys, you guys sing that song wrong. No, don't do that. I'll deny ever saying that. But anyway, 
I wonder, I wonder what the real tune is going to be. But anyway, Moses sang this song right after God swallowed up Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. It really happened, but it also prefigured a greater victory to come in the tribulation. If you'll recall, a few chapters ago, we read about Satan pursuing Israel into the Judean wilderness, but God is going to protect them. So it could be that these martyrs are singing about the fact that God protects on earth the remnant of Jews who will receive Jesus as their king at his second coming. Commentators are all over the place trying to identify the song of the lamb. It's most likely verses 3 and 4 being sung by the Lamb, by Jesus, to His Father. It anticipates His return to earth to rule and reign for a thousand years. And so uh, the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, they kind of remind us how much the tribulation is about the nation of Israel. Uh, you know, God is working to save all people, obviously, but uh, especially the nation of Israel. The tribulation is called in the Bible the time of Jacob's trouble. And so the, it has a lot of different names, the day of the Lord, the great and terrible day, the tribulation, but it's also called the time of Jacob's trouble, focusing your attention on God dealing with the Jews. It's also known as the 70th week of Daniel, uh, Daniel's famous prophecy of the 70 weeks where he talked about God's dealings with the nation of Israel. And there's one week of seven years left, and that's going to be the tribulation. It's a time especially for God to fulfill his promises to Israel. God will keep his promises to deliver Israel, and Jesus will return to establish the kingdom. And so verse 5, after these things, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Held back for centuries by God's long-suffering with sinners, the seven angels appointed this task will finally be released. It struck me how beautiful and how beautifully dressed they are. The wrath of God, once released, is a beautiful thing, in that it brings all rebellion, all lawlessness to an end. It clears the way for a kingdom in which righteousness and holiness are enforced. And in that sense, it's a beautiful thing. We certainly, you know, wouldn't, we don't want to look at the suffering that we'll see in chapter 16 and revel in that. But the wrath of God itself coming forth is, is marvelous. Righteousness will reign. A contemporary example, everybody is reeling from the Supreme Court's decision last week. Uh, there won't be any decisions like that when Jesus Christ is on the earth. He will decide in righteousness, in holiness. Uh, everything will go down just the way it ought to. Uh, and, and so it's a beautiful thing, the, the coming forth of the wrath of God uh, after God has done everything that he can to strive with sinners to save them. Verse 7, then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. For anyone, believer or non-believer, Whoever wondered why God isn't doing something about all the bad things in the world, all the suffering, this moment in the future, in the closing months of the tribulation, is the answer. He is waiting for men to repent, and when they absolutely show that they will not, 
Then he puts an end to sin by pouring out his wrath upon them. And once this begins, we've been pointing this out to you, uh, not that you need to know it, but I think you understand this, but once these events begin, there's no stopping them. No one is going to be able to go into the temple and appeal to uh, God. He says, no, no one comes in now. Smoke fills the temple until these seven bowls are poured out. This is the end. He'd rather men realize that he's already poured out his wrath against sin upon Jesus on the cross. He'd rather men let Jesus be their substitute and their savior. But if they refuse, after so much prompting, even in the tribulation, they will get what they deserve as sinners in the presence of a holy God. Someone's going to pay for sin. Either you are or Jesus is for you. He did it all on the cross. He, he said, when he, Jesus said it is finished, he meant that it was paid in full. God's debt was paid. Your debt was paid. But you have to receive him. Uh, otherwise, God's wrath is going to fall upon you. It's been our goal throughout this series to emphasize that even though it's the tribulation, God's grace is powerfully at work seeking to save lost men and women. We will not be in the tribulation. While we are in the world, we will have tribulation, trials, troubles, and tragedies, but we will not be in the tribulation, or the, some people call it the great tribulation. Can you see and even sing of God's grace at work in your life? Well, the Apostle Paul, who we mentioned earlier, he saw and he sang about grace. In one place, he declared that whether he was abounding in blessings or being abased by buffetings, he learned to be content. That's from Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. Whether abounding or being abased, he says, I've learned to be content because he recognized that it was God's grace at work. Uh, abounding is my choice. If I had multiple choice between abounding and abased, you want to choose abounding. Uh, it, it just feels better. Uh, but, you know, it's dangerous to abound. It's dangerous to be blessed because then you begin to forget the source of your blessing. And again, as we talked about already, you start to think it has to do with your experience or your intelligence or your something. Uh, you know, some of the craziest people are successful. Some people who, you know, you love those charts of, you know, Albert Einstein was failing science or something like that, you know, and then he becomes this genius or whatever. and and. Uh, but we start to think that, you know, my, my life is pretty blessed. I must be doing okay in this Christian thing. God must be, you know, pleased with me and those kinds of things. And, and then pretty soon you relax. Uh, you know, you're not in fellowship as much anymore. You're not going to church. You're not in prayer. You're not in the Word. Uh, and you set yourself up for a fall. So difficult to uh, abound. We need God's grace to keep us close to Him. Uh, being abased in another place, Paul said God's answer to his prayer about a physical affliction he was suffering was that it was good for him to keep him humble and depending upon God's strength. And then he rejoiced in it. That's grace at work. Now, we, we recognize that more as grace. You pray and pray and pray, and God's answer is, I've chosen this suffering for you. And then you uh, abound in that grace. Or do you? Some people never get to that point. Uh, you know, it's always a why me, what's happening. Uh, they start going after faith healers or different things like that. Uh, um, 
you know, God specifically told Paul, yeah, I am not going to remove the thorn in your flesh. I, I sent it, in fact, so that you would remain humble and so that my strength would be made perfect in your weakness. And again, that's a theme that's running through this morning. Uh, God's strength is only going to be made perfect and revealed through my weakness, not through my strength. Uh, and so I need to learn how to be abased. Paul wasn't the apostle of grace just because he wrote so much about it. It wasn't something intellectual to him. It was something that was intimate to him. It's something he experienced. And so are you abounding? Then it's grace at work. Are you being abased, suffering or in some way struggling? Then grace is what you need to lead you through it with rejoicing. Uh, you need God's presence, God's strength, God's unmerited favor in your life in order to get through to the other side and understand what God is doing. Now in chapter 16, we're gonna look at blaspheming God and scorning his grace at work. Speaking of sayings, Yogi Berra was famous for his odd sayings. Here's a sampling of them. Baseball is 90% mental, the other half is physical. <laughs> I'm not going to buy my kids an encyclopedia let them walk to school like I did. It gets late early out there. I understand that. That's the sad thing. And then uh, here's one. You should always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. <laughs> now, I know the one I want to get to and the one that you're thinking of, the game's not over till it's over. In chapter 16, it's over. Now, we've still got stuff ahead of us in the Revelation, several more chapters of great stuff. But the tribulation comes crashing to its end as the bowls are rapidly poured out. And so verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Again and again, I want to point out that God has been busy throughout the history of the human race to let people know that this was coming and could be personally avoided by faith in Jesus Christ. Verse two, so the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. And so sores like boils break out probably on the hand or head where the mark of the beast is. The real nature of their decision to take the mark and follow the beast is revealed. They thought his mark would save them. Uh, they threw in with him rather than with Jesus. But his mark is really a sign of spiritual rottenness, of inward corruption. Uh, and so they're going to have these terrible, painful sores. Uh, you know, that's the first bowl uh, so that people will know what's going on. There's a connection between this and the Antichrist and the decision that you made. Then verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Now, back in chapter 8, we read about a partial contamination of the sea. Now it is complete. I don't think we can begin to fathom the effects of this judgment. Blood as of a dead man is a phrase describing the stench from all the dead creatures. So you've got you know, what's the, or three-fourths water? Uh, that's the figure they throw out. Uh, so all of that water is blood. And all of the creatures, all of the creatures in the sea 
are dead. Uh, it's pretty amazing. To, I, it's unfathomable. You, you, you couldn't even do this with CG. I mean, it, it's going to be the craziest thing ever. Verse 4, Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water. They became blood. I heard the angel of the water saying, You're righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. These who rejected Jesus also shed the blood of his saints. And so now in a moment of what we would call poetic justice, they are given blood to drink. In the sense that there is no water. This can be worse than the drought because uh, the water is blood. Uh, so when you do find water, it's, it's blood. And so uh, this is quite off, honestly just awful. Verse eight, then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The weather seems so important to us. The temperature, the humidity. We talk about the weather all the time. Have you ever gone through one day of your life without talking about the weather to somebody? whether it's a bank teller or, you know, somebody. It's, it's, it's like our entry-level communication with people. It's, the, it's, the, uh, it's kind of a funny way to say it, but it's the big icebreaker. Is it still hot out there? Well, what do you think happened? From the time you got to work an hour ago until now, typically in the summer, it gets hotter. So is it still hot out there is silly. But then you answer in a suit, yeah, it's, oh man, you know, ah, it's a scorcher. Well, you know what? In the tribulation, it's going to be a scorcher out there because the sun is just going to be burning people. I'm not talking about SPF, you know, 100 or so. There's not going to be any sun protection that you can put on. The sun is going to be given power to just waste people. Uh, and, and um, you know, temperature will be a real thing. Now, remember that in the middle of the tribulation, God dispatched an angel to warn men that if they took his mark and worshiped the beast, they'd be lost spiritually forever. I therefore take their failure to repent here in the end to be the sad consequence of that previous decision. And so there came a time past which men would no longer repent. And God, we had passed that time, and when it says they wouldn't repent, it's just a reinforcement of that decision. There are things... Um, that you can't repent from in one sense. Uh, for example, the children of Israel, when they were in the Exodus and they came to Kadesh Barnea and God said, go into the land. And they said, no, we're not going in. There's giants in there. We're afraid. Uh, and, and they refused to go in. Then they realized that they had sinned and they said, okay, we'll go in. God says, no, it's too late for you to go in now. All of you over 20 years old are going to die. And so they could personally repent. They could get right with the Lord, but they couldn't go into the promised land. They had made a, an irreversible decision at that point. And so midway through the tribulation, we pointed out last time we were together, people are going to have to make a decision. Are you going to worship Jesus Christ? Are you going to worship the Antichrist? And from that point on, 
repentance is impossible. So it's just reminding us that as these plagues are poured out, it's being poured out on unrepentant men who were given plenty of opportunity to know the Lord. Verse 10, then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. Even while the sun is intensified, darkness covers the throne of the beast and his kingdom. It's God's way of calling the world's attention to the center of opposition to him. Now, the verse speaks of an incredible pain associated with this bowl. Have you ever been in so much pain that you had to bite down on something? That's a famous thing in old westerns, you know? Bite down on a bullet or a piece of wood or something like that because they're, the only anesthetic is a shot of whiskey and you know, they pour the rest of the whiskey in the wound and then the doctor drinks some whiskey and then they're, ah, you know, and you're like, ah, and stuff. That's, those are the days. Bring that back. I've been to hospitals like that. But anyway, uh, it, it, I remember biting down on my wallet that time I broke my leg and they were taking me to the hospital in a van. It just hurt, you know, you had a broken leg. And I, said, and I said, just give me my wallet. And I chewed my wallet. Uh, it was a good wallet. But uh, so you always have a soft wallet that is genuine leather. <laughs> You don't want to have some Tyvek thing in your mouth, I'll tell you. So be, be aware of that. Um, maybe we should invent something like a bite thing that you could carry that, and I don't know. I have these ideas. Have you ever bitten your own tongue? Man, does that ever hurt. What is, what's all that about? Have you ever bit your tongue? You're, how long have you been eating and talking and then all of a sudden, oh, what just happened? Did your mouth shift or what? How do you bite your tongue? Is, is, there, is the tolerance gone or what? Man, that hurts. Now put all that together. The pain men will experience in, uh, will be so intense that they will gnaw on their own tongues in some sort of failed effort to alleviate their suffering. When you start chewing your own tongue, you're in pain. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm in so much pain, I'm going to chew my tongue because I'd rather have a sore tongue than <laughs> whatever else I'm feeling. Oh, man. Sin is dark. Men like to hide their evil deeds under cover of darkness. But in the darkness, we hurt others and we hurt ourselves. Come out into the light. You know, a couple of times here, we've talked about men who can't repent. If you're sinning, you can repent. You and I can repent. There's no can't uh, when it comes to repentance. If you're a Christian and you sin and you're in habitual sin, God's given you the power to say yes to him and notice him to turn to God from idols. You can repent, and I would recommend that you do so. Verse 12, then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. The Euphrates is one of the great rivers in the world. It formed the eastern border of the old Roman Empire. It was the site of the world's first great and rebellious city, Babel, after the global flood, it was the site of Nebuchadnezzar's magnificent capital, Babylon. On its shores in the future, there will be a new Babylon to serve as the capital for the Antichrist. We'll read about it in the next two chapters. Babylon is a huge subject in the Bible. It's uh, next to Jerusalem. It is the most prominent city mentioned in all the word of God 
as the rebellion against the Lord. And so it's a very interesting concept. Exactly how the sixth angel acts to dry up the river is not stated here. Could involve shifts in the tectonic plates of the earth. A major earthquake is discussed a little bit later. We don't know. It's interesting to observe in passing that the source of the water for the Euphrates is the perennial ice cap near the 17,000-foot summit of Mount Ararat. That's where most researchers believe that Noah's ark came to rest. Could be that God has kept us from discovering the ark so it could be revealed in the last days as a witness to the world of God's impending return for judgment. There's so much really going on with these bowls, it's hard to get it all in. For example, there are a ton of similarities to the 10 plagues before the Exodus, like darkness over the land and water turning to blood. Then there's something Jews would immediately recognize. When the angels emerge from the temple, they look a lot like the high priest when he emerges from the temple once a year on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement. But since those who dwell on the earth during the tribulation have rejected Jesus, instead of God's wrath being averted, now it's being poured out. Uh, and so the Day of Atonement, uh, there was this huge ceremony involving the high priest going into and out of and into and out of the Holy of Holies so that the nation could survive another year that someone or something took their sin for them for that next year. But it prefigures what's going to happen in the tribulation when that's all done. Yeah, Jesus did that for you, but you rejected that. And so now that wrath is coming and it's going to fall upon you. The, uh, the river is dried up to prepare a passageway for the kings of the east. Literally, it is the kings of the sun rising, uh, whether it's just the Chinese or whether it's uh, the uh, Indians uh, and all. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in subsequent chapters. Verse 13, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Remember the one uh, Star Trek movie, The Wrath of Khan, where that thing comes out of the guy's ear? Maybe you don't remember that, but it's pretty gross. And then uh, you've probably seen some kind of sci-fi thing where something's inside you know, and just comes out the mouth. Man, you talk about grossing people out. And so he says here, yeah, I, I was watching and it seemed like unclean spirits that looked like frogs came out of their mouth. The armies of the nations of the world come for what they think of their own political motivations, but in reality, their movements are satanically led. A lot of things that happen in the world and throughout history when it comes to governments, at some point you have to throw up your hands and say, that's just satanic. I've watched a lot of specials over the years and documentaries on Nazi Germany. And, and people are always trying to figure out what, what's with Hitler, Mengele? How did those guys come up with those things? What motivates people to do that kind of thing? Not just the conquest, but the carnage and, and the, the, you know, the Holocaust and all of that. Where does that come from? And, and of course, psychology, everybody's trying to figure that out. And at some point you have to say, hey, it's satanic. That's where it comes from. And then you find out, about 10 years ago, it was unpopular to say that 
the Third Reich had dabbled in the occult. And, oh, there's no real evidence of that. You know, people didn't want to admit it. Now it's commonly known that all of those guys were crazy satanic cultists. Uh, they didn't really know what they were doing, but you know, I think you look at Nazi Germany and say, hey, that's the devil at work in human history. And, and so some things, I don't know what they are. I don't want to be the guy that starts labeling things, but some things that are inexplicable that governments do or, or, or that you know, nations do, you think, I wonder if that is some kind of weird satanic strategy because it doesn't make any sense on any other dimension. The devil is, after all, the god of this world, the ruler of this world. So why gather all the armies here at the end? Well, the devil knows Jesus is coming back and he wants to oppose him. I mean, you gotta try, right? You know, the devil, uh, he's doing everything he can to try and thwart the return of Jesus Christ. That's been his sole mission and purpose ever since he fell from God's grace is to try and destroy the coming of Jesus. Uh, and he, didn't, he wasn't able to, so now he's going to try and uh, fool with the second coming of Jesus. And all he has at his disposal is his own angels and the armies of the world. And so he's going to have to give it a shot. Um, but in, to use a famous phrase, it'll be like bringing a knife to a gunfight uh, because Jesus is not going to be intimidated, obviously, by the armies of the world. In fact, this isn't even Satan's battle. It says it's the battle of the great day of Almighty God. And so whatever strategy Satan devises, God has his own moves to overcome them. Verse 15 is a direct quotation from the Lord. It says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. The thief comes suddenly and unexpectedly, resulting in your being plundered. Similar warnings are given in Matthew 24 and Luke 12. Those who are not ready suffer loss. You know, people don't call your house and say, Hey, I'm the guy that's been robbing the neighborhood. You guys usually go to lunch on Fridays from 12 to 1. Are, are, are you going to be gone? Because I, I really don't want to run into you while I'm pulling your television off the wall. Yeah, we might be home a little bit early or we might go to Kohl's, but you know, you've got a 15-minute window there. How about we text you when we're on our way back? I mean, that's not the way it works. This is telling me, again, that the church will not be on the earth during this time nor any time during the tribulation. The Apostle Paul assured the Christians at Thessalonica, the day of the Lord could not overtake him as a thief. He said, guys, the day of the Lord, the tribulation, will not overtake you as a thief. Jesus says, what's going to happen? I'm going to overtake men as a thief, so you can't be there, or else there's a contradiction. So we'll be safe in heaven. Now, the Lord speaks these words to encourage believers on the earth during the final months of the tribulation to remain faithful. Verse 16, they gathered them together in the place called in the Hebrew Armageddon. Megiddo is a hill overlooking the Jezreel Valley. On the opposite side of the valley can be seen Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus till his ministry began. Megiddo in Hebrew means something like rendezvous or place of troops. Armageddon is derived from the original Hebrew word pronounced Har Megiddon. And so it has to do with this valley of Megiddo. The plain there at Megiddo is 14 miles wide and 20 miles long. Napoleon, who knew something about warfare, called it the most natural battlefield on the earth. Jerusalem initially falls to the forces of the Antichrist prior to the return of the Lord. In Zechariah 14:2, it says, I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be shaken, the houses rifled, 
the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then he says in verse three, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Zephaniah 3.8, therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. And so Armageddon isn't a metaphor for some maybe we can divert it destruction. It's a place where mankind's centuries long Satan-led rebellion will be crushed at the coming of the Lord. Verse 17, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, it's done. Verse 18, then there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. There was a great earthquake such as mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. So a storm breaks out overhead, the earth shakes beneath. The next verses describe some of the dreadfulness of those two things. Weather can be terrifying and as you know, it can kill. Same thing with earthquakes. And so verse 19, now the great city was divided into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. Great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And so this is a global shaking, it's not local. The cities of all the nations fell. What is the great city he's talking about? Well, it could be Jerusalem or it could be the rebuilt Babylon mentioned in the verse. Jerusalem will in fact experience geographic alterations at the second coming of Jesus. For one thing, we know that Mount Zion is gonna split in two when he lands there. I'm one who thinks Babylon will be rebuilt in Iraq and serve as the Antichrist capital. We'll talk about how that's possible next time we're together. But back to the earthquake in verse 20, then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. I think this is literal. I don't see any reason to think that it's an exaggeration. We would say this is the big one. You know, we're always waiting for the big one in California where, you, you know, Hanford would be beachfront property. We joke around, this is the big one. It's off the charge. And it seems to indicate topographic changes all over the planet, not confined to the area around the Middle East. Creation scientists who we like see this as a leveling of the planet. High peaks and low troughs and valleys level out so the entire planet is accessible during the reign of Jesus Christ. It's like, it's flat. The earth will be flat, not as the globe itself, but the topography of the earth. You're gonna be able to climb Everest because it's only gonna be three feet tall. And so the whole topography of the planet is going to change. Think of how terrifying a seismic event like this will be. You know, we live in California, earthquakes, you know, we, we respect them, but they don't bother us that much. You ever have your relatives come out from back east? I mean, they're people who huddle in storm shelters and, you know, have real weather problems. And then the earth shakes a little bit. All you have to do is move the table a little bit. They think there's an earthquake and they run for cover. They want to, you know, it's like the worst thing in the world. I don't know. I don't get it. I'm more hurricanes, tornadoes. Those kinds of things are to worry about. Earthquakes, uh, do your best. Verse 21, great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone weighing about the weight of a talent. Men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. 
The largest hailstone recovered in the U.S. fell in Aurora, Nebraska on June 22, 2003, diameter seven inches, circumference of 18.75 inches. Since its weight could not be determined, the hailstone that fell on Coffeyville, Kansas in 1970 remains the largest on record, 5.7 inches, 1.67 pounds. So it's a, essentially a two pound hailstone. A talent is believed to be around 100 pounds. And so um, I don't even, inside, outside, it doesn't matter. You just have to hope one of these things doesn't hit you. And so what I said, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The tribulation saints see the grace of God at work and they bless him for it. Most of them are martyred, but some are alive during the bowls. Jesus lets them know that his not, he's not coming for them as a thief, but as their savior. I think we can assume that he will keep them safe to the end. Non-believers blaspheme using their tongues to gnaw upon rather than to acknowledge God's grace. I mean, that's a visual for you. You want to use your tongue to sing praises to the Lord, or do you want to just chew on it at the end? Those are your choices. If you're a believer, it's doubtful you blaspheme God during your trials, but do you bless him for his grace in them? That's something that we all need to do more of, of course, is come to the point of rejoicing uh, in our trials because of God's grace. If you're not a believer, that can be rectified by God's grace as he offers you the forgiveness of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans, we read, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. This simply means that God already poured out his wrath against sin upon Jesus for you. You cannot withstand it on your own. The message, of course, receive the Lord and be saved. Let's pray.